Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. It's going to end in disaster. Everything? This era. Well, I mean, when the apocalypse come, all of this. Well, it's not, no. I'm, not, I'm not writing a Left Behind novel. I'm just no, I mean, saying it's going to no, great. The next great 20 good. years are going to fucking suck. This is not. This is a bad this is, fucking this time. This is not going really? well. Yep. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. Greetings, and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. My hands are extended over my head. It's a little weird. What are you doing? This is your almost weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. Uh, I'm Camille Foster. I do many important things at a place called Freethink, uh, and I'm delighted to be here with you today. This episode is recorded on June 20th, 2018. Yeah. It's episode 105, um, and as per usual, I am delighted to be joined by a full complement of a remableness. Uh, Matt Welch, editor-at-large of Reason Magazine, in the building. Michael Ooh. Moynihan, national Yay. correspondent for HBO's Smile Last News go. Tonight. <laughs> also in the building, our very, 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 very good friend, Anthony Fisher, senior editor at The Week. Also in the building. Gentlemen, how the hell are you? Doing great. It's great. Well, you say a lot that, of you say you do a lot of like uh, wonderful things at Freethink. Can you name I like say, two? I just say important things or important, but like <laughs> well, the, what's one or two? I, I've, like, my, people my, don't understand. My partner Chandler said that I'm Freethink's resident public intellectual. Really? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Is he the private intellectual? Exactly right. He, he's <laughs> privately a lot smarter than you. You're the one who just makes an ass of yourself in public. Yeah. No, yeah. I do. I do things. With the ambassador sometimes to the intellectual dark things. web. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes you may see me on things. Um, the the phrase dark web is racially charged. Mm. Yeah. But, like sexually, because racially. I, okay. Just because I said so. All right. Fine. Yeah. You're always making rules. Why not? Yeah. Fine. Well. Yeah. So is that, everybody's okay. Everybody's like a, just everyone just kind of was like, yeah, I yeah guess everybody's fine. fine. Sounds really? like I didn't hear anything from Fisher. Fisher, are you okay? Doing great. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, like, so, this I'm glad. He was doing around his neck. Else. This is like a people's temple. Like, yeah, no, exactly. Suicide here. Exactly. We're, we're about to shoot a congressman. Well, he <laughs> <laughs> didn't kill a guy. Leo Ryan killed him on the tarmac. Well, I do want to introduce. <laughs> what, what the fuck was he doing there? Wasn't his business? No, it's true. He had Zach it coming. get out of there. Had it coming. Yeah, best part is uh, Congressman Ryan was about to head back to the America to say, "Hey, everything's fine." <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, was. he was. He was like, "Man, they really fooled him, didn't they?" Do you know what I did? Would have got away with it if it wasn't for you kids. Do you know what I did <laughs> in <laughs> elementary <laughs> elementary school? Uh, I did. You meddling cult member. I was like in fifth grade or sixth grade when uh, when the people's cult uh, thing happened, and so I obviously, and I'm sure we've all done very. The variations of this did a Saturday Night Live skit that I co-opted my friends in, and we did a a, a, a fake Mickey Mouse Club for the Jim's Joan cult. Mm-hmm. So right. I was like, "Who's the leader of the cult that's made for you?" And me. I, I'm sorry, how old were you? I was like oh, ten or eleven. J I M M Y J O N E S. Jimmy <laughs> Jones. Cyanide. R- Jimmy what? Jones. This, this is in elementary a, school. This, I, this all just came flooding back. I'd forgotten yeah. this. Forever I mean, it's not much worse than Ring Around the Rosie or I, any of those I, other I, horrible I, poisonous songs. And then at the end, we all <laughs> drank out of Dixie cups and then fell spasmodically onto the ground. Yeah, really? That's exactly totally... like Ring Around the Rosie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in great. Long Beach, California, yeah. you played mass murder games <laughs> yeah. as a child. To the sounds of the uh, Disney, uh, the Musketeer Club. 
Jesus. Is, there's, how is that seriously, different there's something than anyone else's childhood? Like, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. <laughs> how is this different He falls. Are you can't serious? Put him back together again. My best friend and I used to go play pole pot in the woods and <laughs> we would like, take, take little cat skulls and put, and put them all together. Jack, like, Jack and Jill oh, go up a hill. Jack falls down. He has a horrible head injury. And yeah, but Jill it's not. comes tumbling after. I mean, these are terrible. That's just songs. an accident. That's an accident, That Camille. we sing about with Joel. Yes, but the accidents happen. <laughs> Jim Jones killed like 5,000 people. Yeah, that wasn't that much. Mass suicide Nine also yeah. happens. That wasn't suicide. I think, I think kids anyway. need more serious, perhaps more grave and severe songs. You know what? <laughs> let, me, let me do this. Let me do this. I feel so... I was your daughter is like so I, cute. I'll and tell you she's a story so about my daughter up. in a second. But before I do, we have a guest in the room. Yeah. Michael Tracy. I think he's probably already left. Howdy. Michael, <laughs> I've <laughs> been <laughs> contemplating. <laughs> it's, it's bizarre. We do this thing and I don't know why and we don't always do it, but we often do where I'll introduce the, the mainstays of the program, the guys who are here most oh. of the time. Right. And then I will introduce the guest after a beat, almost as if it's a surprise for people or you're not in the room, but you're sitting with us next to yeah, us. But it also says show. on the podcast thing. Yeah, I know. That's like nice. when you get it on iTunes, it just says like, sense. we know, should probably Michael just stop. People don't that. read. I don't know. That's true. Well, they, I, they read headlines. They don't read anything else. I had so many pithy jokes to make in that little first three <laughs> yeah. minutes, but I held back because I wanted to keep it a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> well, please, please, the big reveal is in. here. <laughs> I, I will tell you a beautiful story about my daughter. Um, since I suspect today is a, is a children and family themed episode because we'll talk about immigration, which is mm -hmm. obviously very important for families. But my daughter is going to this uh, this library in the neighborhood. There's one, only only one library in the neighborhood, but they have a program there at like 10 a.m. or something. And when your kid goes, they sing songs and stuff. And yesterday I get home and my wife shows me this video of my daughter at the library singing a song. She's not singing, she's enjoying it. She's smacking the arm of the person who's holding her, um, simulating clapping. But the song that they're singing is about the itsy bitsy spider. And he goes up the water spout, yeah. rain comes down and washes him out. Sun dries up the rain, spider goes up again. And then they have this refrain afterwards and they sing, never give up, never give up, oh. And I, I found myself weeping like an idiot child. Oh, I'm sorry, what? Because I'm watching my daughter Didn't who is this. overcome with joy mm -hmm. because of the singing and the celebration that's happening around her. Mm -hmm. She's six months old. She's becoming an autonomous human. And she has these things that she's passionate about, like this friggin' song about the spider who refuses to quit, mm -hmm. rains, he falls, he goes again, and they'll never give up. And I've never in my life seen anything so wonderful and beautiful did she have the watermelon chew toy no <laughs> can we, no she didn't can we also cut that but that's what i'm looking at later. no we've talked about the watermelon chew toy in the uh, past it's just, important and uh i think it was a it's a step forward for us as a people i mean by which i mean humans that matt welch gave that wonderful gift to my to my beautiful daughter so I'm sorry. That was that was the story I wanted to tell. You. Um, I thought it would bring us together. I'm still working on acquiring human autonomy myself. So he's actually ahead of me. <laughs> Give him a chew toy. You're getting closer. <laughs> yeah, watermelon, fried chicken, or oh, um, God. cools. Do I have to be a part of this podcast anymore? <laughs> I don't think I want to be a part of this. You're Says very... the guy who is like mainlining Jesse Jackson the speeches yeah, before, before I we started. Yeah, because I appreciate Jesse. <laughs> enlightened. Because I'm woke, enlightened obviously. and I'm fucking woke. Yeah. I went to, um, I'll tell one stoop, this is not really a story. Um, it doesn't go anywhere. So just, <laughs> you can go like go to the bathroom now and I'll come back and it'll be done. But uh, I went to um, Whole Foods 
in uh, in uh, Brooklyn the other day. Mm -hmm. And they have these, uh, it's a new one, and they have these signs um, above the registers that are supposed to be like clever because there's like 6,000 registers and it's like cattle, it's like insane to get. And I went to one and above the person, it was like register 16, I have a photo of it. And it said, stay woke on the top of the register. Hmm. And I was like, what the fuck, what? It, it was really, hmm. and then and then they asked me if I was an Amazon Prime member. <laughs> Seriously, I was like, yeah, I am actually. And like, you get a discount because Jeff Bezos owns it. And I was like, the stay the whole none of it made sense to me. Yeah, but but the the bread was pretty good. I yeah. got that good delicious bread. Did you feel like that? What's that more? incentive to actually stay woke or did you no, rebel against I, the I, I, I rebel I rebelled a little bit I actually became a white yeah. nationalist yeah, at that no, very I, moment yeah. that I, went, I went outside and I read a Sam Francis book <laughs> there'd be about three people that'll get that and all of them are fucking horrible um, yeah they're bad people yeah he's a bad a lot person of those he's a bad person by the way can I point out that you mentioned um Comrade Tracy, but you didn't say anything about him. Yeah, really. I, I didn't? No, no. Not like a whole what he lot does. Like, like where I, he is. You know what? I was getting ready to. I'm an idiot. I'm I'm sorry. I have like, notes. Can I just say that all great yeah. stories nowadays seem to begin with so I was at Whole Foods? Yeah. <laughs> is that true? So you're continuing in that great tradition. Yeah. I, Mommy I, Lauren, you know, yeah, everybody. <laughs> I, I have to say, can I say the worst thing I've ever said? Like, yeah. no, that's actually not even true. I said worst things like last in the last 20 minutes. I like I, I Whole Foods is just full of beautiful women. Can I point this out? Is that okay? Is that the worst thing huh? that you Is said? that? No, I just like, I, I'm in there and it's like, what? In New York, maybe. I don't know if it's ever New York, New York, New York over indexed. But it is, good Lord. Yeah. It's, it's just the, like. The Gelsons in Pacific Palisades. Okay. Gelsons? Uh, the Gelsons in Pacific <laughs> Palisades. Trust me. It's, uh, it's uh, Kennedy. Gandalfs? Kennedy uh, and Dave's uh, Gelsons. You go in there yeah. and like, you are you 20? Are you 75? I can't tell, but you're six foot three and you're yeah. totally gorgeous yeah. uh, and uh, athletic and you don't. This is really gone off the rails fast. Yeah, it's totally why, gone off the rails. Why don't we get to just what, say, what, so what Michael, Tracy did? Michael, your Twitter bio says that you are a roving journalist and correspondent for something called the TYT Network. What yep. What is that? this? All of that is tongue-in-cheek. Yeah? Pretty young things. So, so, so tell me, what, what is it that you do other than rove around? Because you're here, <laughs> you're here in New York. You actually live in another part of the world. Right. What are you doing here, and what is your affiliation? My affiliation is with TYT Network, which is the Young Turks Network. It's, you know, people, I, think I think I've heard of that. People know it as the online news YouTube show, but yes. I've done other stuff that's almost tangentially associated with the show. They started a journalism network about a year and a half ago. So that's what I've been doing. Um, so I don't have a whole lot of connection with the main show. Mm hmm. Um, but I'm within the network, which is way too roundabout of an explanation for most people to grasp, which is why I don't really bother explaining it most of the time. And I, you cover I, what these days? Uh, mostly politics, foreign policy related stuff, uh, whatever tickles my fancy. I, I know you primarily as a Twitter curmudgeon who says things that make other people upset, but frequently, yeah, I tried. I'm in agreement with them. Yeah, you have a lot of Twitter enemies, don't you? <laughs> I, I don't know why. I feel like I'm a, generally a pretty happy-go-lucky person, but a lot of people seem angry it on the internet. Might be true, but people also hate you on Twitter. Yes, right? people do. Something, yeah, something, like something about all the swastikas next yeah. to your name. Very <laughs> right. strange. Those emojis. It's weird. It's the three parentheses. People hate you on Gab. Don't they? <laughs> Do they? Oh. I don't know. I've never been on the thing. Michael, this, I want to be. I just want to be clear about that. That's just a joke. I don't even know this. I don't know. Michael don't know. probably led the uh, which which one? Uh, Tracy. Mm -hmm. I would see this one over here is Moynihan. Good yeah. or okay. like douchebag. Or At least whatever. today we'll, we'll try anyways. Yeah. I don't do much of anything anymore. There is uh, 
there probably aren't a lot of people who've written 10 pieces for both the nation and reason over the past like 15 years. Hmm. And he might be one of them. Am I is that close to it? You know, I tried to form a club on that basis, and yeah. I ended up being the only member. So. Yeah. <laughs> Who would be the other members? Anyone else that's close? I mean, if the if you stretch it back long enough, I'm a member. Because, I was going to say, uh, probably Matt Welch. But, like, that's just because they picked up my Ralph Nader coverage in 2000 from workingforchange.com. Yeah. Uh, I, didn't, I don't think I wrote anything originally. That wasn't the 9-11 Truther site, was it? It might have been later, but it wasn't when I was there. It was something the change. That was owned was by a truth was owned by Working no, Assets, which is a, a Stalinist phone Keep company. Uh, that would uh, the idea is that if your phone bill was thirty seven dollars and twenty five cents, the seventy five <laughs> would, would shoot forty eight kulaks. It would just go buy a lot of abortions <laughs> and stuff. Uh, and uh, and they, <clears throat> but they were great. They're like, hey, you know, no one's covering the Nader campaign in two thousand. Why don't you do it? And uh, and like I was, or we were literally like the, the only organization that had a full time Nader reporter. Back then, the guy got kind of a lot of votes. Yeah, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> bit of a spoiler in that election. Too. <laughs> this kind of argument we had. I don't know. It was an argument. A bit of spoiling, but no. I mean, uh, Jesse Walker used to write for the Nation back in the day uh, a fair amount. But yeah, I just want to point out to Mr. Do you know that? Who did? Pat, Pat Buchanan. Buchanan. He, he wrote for the Nation in the '60s. He contributed a column to the Nation. There's a, a bunch. Of my favorite uh, of those is like one or two issues of Ramparts. Yep. The great uh, late sixties. Uh, I guess it was a it was a Jesuit magazine, which it was became a, ca- a Catholic it was quarterly. Catholic quarterly that became that, an investigative became a, lefty. Yeah, and like, uh, uh, very brief uh, White House correspondent in I guess sixty eight sixty nine was Brit Hume. For like one or two, I forgot and I that. pointed it out on Twitter one time, and Brit Hume like slapped me down. And was like, I was I was there for like six hours. What are you talking about? It's like, but you knew the magazine you were working for. I mean, it was, they were like being prosecuted, I think, at the time, <laughs> right? Because they were the ones for that exposed um, the CIA, fund, CIA yeah. funding of a lot of uh, magazines, including Encounter Magazine and others. But um, I, to, back to uh, uh, Comrade Tracy, um, <laughs> the, a lot of the hate that you get, and tell me if I'm wrong about this, I could be wrong, is actually from what would seem to be your own side, right? There's people on the left that kind of get annoyed with you, right? Is that is that sort of accurate? Um, you know, I think that's accurate to some extent. I think a lot of that stems from the 2016 election, which still seems to dominate our conception of how politics is oriented in the United States, even now. I mean, look at Congress this week. The two main hearings in the House and yeah. the and the Senate were all about the 2016 election. Hillary Clinton's emails, yeah. Hillary's emails is still dominating the agenda because it has some relation to what the outcome of the election was, which is just insane. Which is why I've always called it a watershed, not in terms of the electoral result, but because of how it kind of has aligned our political sensibilities just as a populace. Um, so but, what are those heterodox views that people on your own side, people on the left, um, get annoyed with you about? You know, when I still had the motivation to actually interrogate why it was that they were so mad at me, yeah. I used to try to ask them, hey, let's we can discuss what you seem to have agreements about and see if we can locate the source of that tension. And, you know, for the most part, when I would do that on the occasions when I would actually make the effort to do that, Most often, you couldn't actually locate what the nexus of disagreement was. It was more just a general impression about my overall kind of posture that, I guess, rubbed them the wrong way. One one aspect. A Greenwald thing, right? 
I, I mean, I, I, I mean, think it's kind of similar to what why people on the left don't like. I think it's well, liberals, yeah, I guess, don't like. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it, you have to kind of separate the different elements of the left. I mean, and even saying liberals versus the left is sort of no simplification, but there is a bifurcation there, and yeah. it seems to be actually growing. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, I think if for somebody like him, if you were to you know sit down over coffee, if he were to sit down over coffee with one of his critics, al- almost assuredly they would become be able to come to some kind of reconciliation. Yeah. And I think it's similar with me. I mean, I don't have a foundational disagreement with lots of the people on the left that just didn't like how I comported myself for mm. whatever reason during the twenty sixteen election because they thought that the main imperative had to be to at all costs stop this fascist menace from assuming power. Mm. So they had to, you know, they wanted a popular front in essence. And I didn't necessarily agree with all the logic mm-hmm. behind that call for a popular front. So therefore I was thrown into this basket of deplorables. Yeah. And, and also you were one of the people, you're kind of like the Selena Zito of the left on some level, uh, for at least as I was experiencing what you were writing about in 2016, which is that. People, you elite journalists or whatever, the mainstream media in your kind of New York centric uh, world, you're missing out on something out there. Um, that something is larger than you have any idea about, uh, regardless of what you think about that something, that something exists and you don't really realize how much it exists. And I think people don't forgive you. Uh, for, it's like, you remember when uh, when Nate Silver was dragged within an inch of his life, like in October 2016, for saying that Hillary Clinton only had like 75 percent chance of winning? Yeah. Um, it's like, oh, my God, you're making it uh, rather than 99.8 percent, which yeah. is what the Huffington Post projected, if I recall. And correctly. by the way, which is what 538 projected on the election on Election Day was up like at 90 percent. So. Yeah. So I think uh, I think maybe that dragging, you know, he, he backed down a little bit. So it's it's both <laughs> like calling that that exists, but also Tracy takes uh takes uh, some amount of glee in uh, poking the pieties of kind of mainstream liberal journalism or mainstream liberal thought as well. I think it's yeah, fair to say. You know, something that we're still dealing with now, again, a year and a half later, is that during the election, I think one of the most prominent features of what transpired was that in elite circles, and this even extended to conservative media in some respect, because remember, they were overwhelmingly hostile to Trump, uh, although not exclusively. What happened with what the dynamic was is that elites would be screaming to other elites about how much how terrible Trump was, and they wouldn't even have any expectation that there would be somebody available to provide an alternate perspective on why maybe Trump wasn't as terrible as they were saying. And that created a feedback loop and it kind of calcified their thinking so that they couldn't even comprehend how anybody else would have a different perspective. And I think. Even granting the legitimacy of the view that Trump is terrible, which is I agree with in many respects, if you're in that kind of calcified state, it kind of weakens your intellectual capacity to kind of empathize with how other people see the world. And I thought that was really a pathology of of elites in 2016 that really hasn't ebbed in any significant sense. So that, that's what I pointed out. So I think people were really mad because they interpreted that as somehow a defense of Trump, which yeah. it was not, and which I said every step of the way was not a defense of Trump, but because they thought that, again, the stakes were so high and that the effect of my doing this was to enable the a fascist ascent to power, that I somehow was in cahoots with that. I think there's there's a lot to that. And when I was out there on the campaign trail in 2016, I, I noticed a lot of people that were filing copy from Trump rallies and I would see them there in the pen of journalists. And um, I, I remember I posted a bunch of funny photos from one and. 
Marshalltown, Iowa or something. But, you know, it was always the requisite thing where the the crowd would get all uh, agitated and turn towards the pen of, um, you know, liberal media assholes and start kind of mow-mowing them and shouting at them. And that was the extent of the interaction from a lot of these people that were filing copy from every single Trump campaign stop. And I, I noticed a kind of a different thing. One friend of mine... <clears throat> I can't even say he's pretty far to the left and his, the people he's worked for are very far to the left. And I was with him in one place uh, with a lot of uh, Trump voters. It was, it was sort of mixed, but I'd say 80, 20 Trump voters. And we we're in a bar and um, we came out and the next day we were traveling and we had this conversation in the car and he was like, I can't, I can't like a, a Jewish New York you know, lefty kind of like fitting what Trump people believe the elite media lefty to be. And he was like, wow, that was like really interesting. And I was like, what's, what's going on? And he's like, you know, it's funny. I like they're they're They didn't seem like super racist and hateful. And as a matter of fact, this guy was like factory guys. Um, uh, like a couple of those guys that I was talking to and I, and I, I knew who he was talking about two black guys and they were like super down with Trump and they were like, nobody understands us. Nobody actually talks about our issues. And he's the first guy. He might be full of shit to actually talk about sort of working class issues. We kind of like Sanders. We kind of like Trump. We think probably Trump's more viable, et cetera. And this had never occurred to him. And it was a really interesting moment. And he was like, this should be in the piece that I'm doing is that these people actually aren't horrible monsters. I mean, some of them probably are. And especially the ones that go to rallies, right? I mean, that's a, that's a yeah. sort of active participation versus passive kind of like, I'm and that's going true of all rallies, all rallies, like all time. Yeah. I mean, you can get that at the old net roots conference. You know, I always thought it was cheap when conservatives would go to that and find this little passel of nine 11 conspiracy theorists and be like, look at the left, these fucking guys, you know, I can't believe it. And it's like, yeah, okay. They kind of exist in that universe, but you're self-selecting in a very, very strange way of like, these people are traveling to like a lefty conference in 2005 on some dingy college campus somewhere in like, you know, Omaha. And you know, it's not like a good representation presentation of liberals who are voting for John Kerry, for instance. And I think we saw a lot of that. And I, I, it was much harsher this time around that most people that I talked to had no interest in even wanting to talk to these people. And, and I say this as somebody who really, really dislikes uh, our current president. Yeah, it's, it was more it's more of a uh, and this remains with us and remains with me, too. Like um, so much of the argument about the journalism about Trump is uh, is kind of you have to call you don't use the word falsehood it has to be lie yeah. like you have to shake your damn head harder um in order and as if that's going to be the thing it's like the it's like the you know the de niro speech like that's not going to be the thing the thing is going to be something else and i get the impulse i want to shake my damn head harder particularly after this week particularly after a bunch of shit that's happened uh recently uh but that is not going to be in itself. If you're if you're in the persuasion game, that's not going to get it done. And you're also in that process, not going to learn why people are attracted to it, which I think you have to do. Do we think I mean, this is a question for everybody. And and Michael Tracy, I'd be interested in what you think of this. I was listening to NPR this morning. I thought of this this morning because it has become such a common 
you know, occurrence when you're listening to NPR or you're reading the New York Times or CNN and the, the Chirons and Lower Thirds. And they're always talking about they have these words like lie, et cetera. In a lot of these things are lies. A lot of these things are fake. Uh-huh. But, you know, it, it, you have this thing on NPR this morning. They said Donald Trump said this, which isn't true. And this and it was in a news report. Uh-huh. And the fact checking within the news report. And it's it's really conspicuous. They're saying it very like loudly. Yeah. Like, you know, Donald Trump said, which is not true. He blamed the Democrats. Democrats, this was on the on the um, the separation of children from their families. Um, you know, said it was which is which is categorically false or whatever they use. Uh-huh. And it was in a news report. And I was like, okay, this is a new thing, right? Yeah. This doesn't happen. And will this? Are we okay with this? Number one. And will this remain? Absolutely not. If if <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, could we say this about a report in 2013 about the Obama administration's response to drone strikes in Yemen? Like, oh, that's a pretty <laughs> flimsy. So now we've actually are in this thing like we have to it's 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 this kind of theology now people are religious about it we have to call out the lies and tell everyone that they're lies which in some way is condescending because I think people who are paying attention to this stuff can usually separate that stuff if you have a few people on as guests on NPR in this news report who are saying this is bullshit and they feel it incumbent upon them and necessary for them as the reporter before the expert comes on, before the Democrat comes on, to them also say that it's bullshit. For, they for also say, shroud of yeah, so they, well, this is bullshit and yeah. then we're going to have uh, you know Chuck Schumer come on and say it's bullshit. And so, okay, that's fine. I don't mind it that much. I don't mind the reorganization of how we, uh, the media in this way, because I'm kind of a fan of the sort of British model in which, you know, papers aren't explicitly conservative or liberal, but they kind of are in mostly in story selection. You know, the Guardian, the Telegraph are very different. And people here are like, well, the New York Times, it's kind of like a public works project. They're being too liberal. So fucking what? It's a good newspaper and they're good at being liberal. Fine. Read something else. I don't mind it so much, but it's a very, very, very big change, it seems to me. It really is a sea change for your typical NPR anchor and your typical CNN anchor to both be sounding like David Korn, essentially, where they're just <laughs> shouting lie, lie, lie about what the incumbent president is stating on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm I'm also sympathetic to the British model where this pretense of objectivity is no longer even relevant. Yeah. I, people, I remember, you know, years ago, I wrote articles and essays advocating for that to be adopted more widely. But the issue now is that you have reporters who are screaming lie, who, uh, you know, will then turn around and lecture, you know, what they perceive to be Trump supporters for not having enough faith in what the media is saying. Right. So you're, the sea change in how journalism conducts itself has occurred within the past two years. And you are not sure why the people who you are accusing of supporting a overt liar necessarily trust what your take on the news of the day is. I mean, there's some kind of di- uh, discordance there that I don't think has been adequately reckoned with. So they, I- their response to this, of course, and, you know, this, I, I, I think there's a certain amount of truth on, on all sides here, is that you know, this uh, president is an uncommon liar. He lies with a kind of zeal and sort of nakedness that no other president has done previously. And I think it's true, think but when you, true. When, when you say what, you know, what Trump blamed the immigration crisis on, on Democrats, Democrats right? right? And to call what Trump said there a lie is whether you want to acknowledge it or not, it's a statement that is informed by your values in a se- sense, because, you know, 
you could make an argument, you could construct an argument, whether or not you actually believe it, that Trump is correct to say that, you know, Democrats role in crafting immigration policy has contributed to a state of affairs where this is the only option that I'm left with. And to call that just a lie is to make a normative assessment of what Trump's saying that's informed by your values. And I don't think enough people in the media are aware that what they're doing is issuing a normative comment on, on things. Yeah, which, right. And I did hear that today on NPR. And they get caught up in the in the emotion of it. I think that you can do the lie thing. Like when Trump says this, you know, this particular enforcement of this policy can only change uh, by Congress. Yeah. And then like. Yeah. And then change, right. try to change it himself. He changes it himself. But, by yeah. but, it's, order. but it's interesting because it's not it's not merely a matter of sort of this is this is absolutely true or this is untrue. To, and perhaps we should put some context around this bigger immigration question, uh, conversation before we delve into it much deeper, that the president shortly after being elected to office signs an executive order that is essentially stating his desire to get rid of what he describes as catch and release immigration policy, what has effectively been a a component of American policy for a very long time, which I think is fair to say is just kind of the discretionary ability that the executive branch has. We do have laws on the books about whether or not people are allowed to simply cross the border at any point and come into the country. That is generally frowned upon, it's regarded as illegal. And if you do that, you are very likely to get picked up by, or you may in fact anyways, get picked up by someone. Whether or not you're prosecuted for this crime is a determination that previous administrations have drawn a line at at least the Bush and the Obama administration. If you're coming here with, say, children, we're generally not going to prosecute you. We'll probably turn you around, drop you off someplace, and maybe you will make another attempt to enter the country the next day, perhaps even that evening. I don't know. But in either case, that was generally the policy. Trump campaigned hard on ending catch and release policy, didn't do it immediately after signing that executive order. Um, I believe it was March of last year when Kelly was on CNN. John Kelly. Um, yeah. And he goes on CNN and he actually says explicitly, well, yeah, we would totally consider breaking up families. Are you, the Department of Homeland Security, considering a new a new initiative that would separate children from their parents if they try to enter the United States illegally? Uh, let me start by saying I would do almost anything to deter uh, the people from Central America uh, uh, to getting on this very, very dangerous network that brings them up through Mexico into the United States. Let me just be precise. Right. If you get... Some young kids were coming in, managed to sneak into the United States with their parents. Our Department of Homeland Security personnel going to separate the children from their moms and dads. We, we have tremendous experience in dealing with unaccompanied minors. Uh, we turn them over to HHS uh, and they do a very, very good job of either putting them in kind of foster care or linking them up with parents or family members in the United States. Yes, I am considering in order to deter uh, more movement along this terribly dangerous network. I am considering uh, exactly that. They will be well cared for as we deal with their parents. But you understand how that looks to the average person uh, who is... You it's know, more important to me, Wolf, to, 
to try to keep people off of this awful network. I suspect he wasn't referring to CNN when he says network. He was actually referring to the network of MS-13, which runs bringing... the entire world yeah, outside yeah. of the United well, States yeah. and most of it inside, too. Well, yeah. the people who not not so infesting me in a the little, face a little sarcasm right now. But I think he was referring to the networks of people who were bringing children up from some of the more unpleasant places in South America that people tend to come here from in some cases. So fast forward, uh, because he walks that statement back shortly thereafter. Nothing happens for a little while. Fast forward to April of this year, and we get Jeff Sessions instituting or announcing anyways the zero tolerance policy. The United States is going to pivot from catch and release to actually trying to prosecute Everyone who comes across the border, in some cases, even people who are coming here seeking asylum, we're going to pick you up, we're going to lock you up. And when we lock you up, yeah, we're going to separate parents from their children because we are seeking legal proceedings here. Um, the consequence is that in a space of, what, a couple of weeks, maybe a little over a month, is it two months or something like that? There's 2,000 odd children who are separated from their families or something like that. Yeah. Um, say again. 50 a day, yeah. 50 a day. Um, but that are separated from their families. They're held in these pens or what? what's the, what's a tender, tender age camps? Yeah, that's uh, it was what the AP and, re yeah. reported yesterday um, yeah. when- I think that's a their out, term though, yeah. Broke down and cry, yeah. broke down crying. Yeah, yeah. And I, I don't even know that term. they, I don't know if the administration, if this administration created that or if that's something yeah. that predates ten, ten, No, tender age is a term of art that predates Donald yeah, Trump. Yeah, I figured yeah. it did. Um, and it's just referring to children of a certain age. Yeah. Um, and the fact is that all of the policies- surrounding this, mandating that children who are separated from their parents, if they're undergoing some sort of legal proceedings, they are, in fact, a, a consequence of U.S. law. And the president, what's changed here is the president has made a determination that in order to keep his promise, he is going to enforce the law stridently and stringently, and he's going to stick to it. I did see a quote from like Mark Short, who is one of the, the policy people in the White House, who um, said that they have tried to get the laws related to this done away with. Every time they've had an opportunity to talk to people about the kind of reforms they've wanted, they've always raised this issue. Um, I'm not certain how credible that is. It's not credible. Um, I wouldn't say and that's and the reason I'm not certain is because last year you were talking about using this as a potential deterrent to keep people from coming to this country. Jeff Sessions, and Jeff Sessions when used asked, that language. said exactly the same Kelly sort of thing. Kelly used that language. Yeah. Right. It's Obviously, there's something gross about seeing children separated from their families and children end up in, in these camps, in, in some cases, warehouses that have been retrofitted as um, uh, uh, like disaster relief shelters um, after hurricanes and have now become these, these compounds where children are kept in. I, I, I want to use the word cages um, because I've seen like the photos of like wire mesh fences and it's, 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 it's gut-wrenching. A point that has been made forcefully, however, it was a defense that the Trump administration tried to raise is that the Obama administration had done similar things in the past. In fact, I think the Trump administration has said they had done the same thing. Which is not true. Um, not true. Um, no, and as you guys sound like uh, the the NPR reporter, but I was gonna yeah. I was gonna we're, say we're, I, I could we're go on. paid by our <laughs> listeners to give our shitty opinions. This is true, and I could go on <laughs> trying to add additional context and even offering my own perspective on this. I I agree with you that it's generally not true. Perhaps the best way to get at this though is to to maybe discuss the way in which that isn't true and the degree to which there are meaningful similarities that are 
not being seriously considered. And and I'm I'm thinking about this in part, Michael, because I I saw like a, a tweet that you put. Yes, Tracy, sorry, <laughs> a tweet a tweet that you put out a little earlier, referring back to Obama era policy as it pertains to immigration. And there's a lot of history here that's worth knowing about the way the Obama policy evolved. At bottom, I mean, would you do you think the administration is correct when they say that this is very much what the Obama administration was doing before? Well, the reason why I brought up the Obama precedent is not to engage in what is now fashionably called whataboutism, no. meaning I want to deflect from whatever evil Trump good. is committing. Matt I frowns don't on whataboutism. I do not want to deflect from that. Yeah. I want to provide a context because what you have now is people shouting Nazism shouting concentration camps. And my point is, okay, if that is your assessment of what the current situation constitutes, then the previous administration did things that maybe if they aren't exactly similar, they are similar enough that they would have also been complicit in this new regime of Nazism, presumably because what the Obama administration did was treat illegal immigration in such a way that it resulted in the widespread separation of children and parents. I think a a principal difference in terms of how it's being discussed publicly is that the Trump administration perceives it as politically advantageous to tout the fact that they are doing things that result in that separation, whereas it was disadvantageous for the Obama administration to do so because of how the incentives in their bases operate. But, you know, if you actually look at the numbers, you know, it's actually striking how much the Obama administration actually furthered similar ends. So I just have a, a data point here that I think is just incredible because I don't remember this at the time generating any kind of moral crisis that result had to result in news anchors breaking objectivity and weeping on air and kind of saying that this cuts to the very core of our character as a nation, that kind of thing. So in 2012, according to a report from one of the leading respected immigration watch groups, 150,000 children were separated from their parents in deportation proceedings. And that did not include unaccompanied minors. So uh, let me just say that again, 150,000 children were separated from their parents as a result of deportation proceedings in 2012. So not what not not 1950, <laughs> 2012 within very recent memory, something that even if it's not exactly similar, similar enough that you would think it would have raised the collective societal ire to the point of generating some kind of moral, you know, moral crisis that we're seeing now. And none of that and that crisis didn't come about. And you, so you have to sit back and wonder why wasn't it that 2012 didn't cause this kind of collective upheaval. And I think a lot of it has to do, unfortunately and superficially, with the rhetoric of the guy presiding over the immigration regime. Obama's rhetoric and Trump's rhetoric are day and night in terms of how they talk about the dignity of immigrants, Mm -hmm. how they just comport themselves in the public stage. And because Trump is willing to go around saying, you know, these people come from shithole countries and that they're rapists and that they're not bringing their best. People are allowed to people weave a narrative that makes the notion of Nazism or concentration camps at least plausible enough that they can run with it, whereas Obama just didn't do that. So if if, if, if the main variable that has changed between 2012 and 2018 is the presidential rhetoric, 
then maybe we're all dwelling on the wrong variable. I think that's there's something to that, and but there's also something not to that in in the sense that um, Obama, kind of like late period uh, George W. Bush, when he couldn't get his immigration reform uh, through in 2006, 2007. Uh, Bush then and Obama in, in his, I believe in his first term, very showily, like Trump would eventually do, send the National Guard down to the border. Um, and we're OK. You people want us to enforce it? Screw it. We're going to enforce it. Obama was actually happy to set record numbers of deportation, um, uh, uh, although it's an apples to oranges comparison for a lot of uh, boring reasons. Uh, but they did send a, a record number of people uh, out. However, Things did change as a result. Immigration activists, this wasn't covered by a lot of people because uh, you're right. People do focus on the dreamy person or the undreamy person. And the, the word dream comes in, into play here. But immigration activists actually didn't sleep. They noticed that when Democrats held power in 2009 and 10, um, they didn't do a goddamn thing about immigration reform. And mm -hmm. so uh, they started raising a stink about the record number of deportations. I remember being at the 2012 uh, Democratic Convention, I might have been hanging out with both you assholes um, <laughs> there um, and watching like Antonio Villaraigosa, who just wonderfully just got his ass handed to him in the California gubernatorial race. But like he was presented as like a fresh young thing, former L.A. mayor of, you know, he's, he's the bright young face of the party, although he's not young and he's not bright. Um, <laughs> Uh, but he was talking about our dreamers uh, and all this kind of stuff. And I just remember seething from the 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 rafters like, are you going to sit there and say you're the party of dreamers after all these people that you've deported, all the families that you've broken up and all this kind of stuff? But what happened is as a result of the pressure by those groups, uh, the Democratic Party diverged in 2013. Um, and Obama eventually did when he came out in November 2014 and uh, proposed DACA, which was actually a really radical uh, separation from things in the past. It was we're going to protect millions of, of uh, immigrants from children, immigrants from deportation. Um, that happened because there was an outrage. It wasn't uh, Rachel Maddow sobbing on MSNBC level outrage, mm -hmm. but there was an activist level uh, outrage that was out there and, and in publications that wrote about this stuff at the time, um, like we did. Um, and I think that's important to point out. Another thing that I, I would say that's important to point out is that, uh, yeah, the 150,000 is a, is a large number. I don't know what the number is uh, and how it would compare exactly to Trump. Uh, I imagine like on a monthly basis, he's probably competitive with it um, without knowing. Um, but uh, that's also broad deportation proceedings. Um, this is what we're seeing right now is uh, a lot of asylum uh, uh, seekers coming in. And, and this it doesn't get played up much at all when like Laura Ingram is talking about, oh, it's like summer camp uh, and all this like garbage that's being spewed out mm -hmm. trying to apologize for this on Fox News and elsewhere. Um, people who are applying for asylum, you're supposed to be able to show up at a border uh, entry point, a point of entry uh, and say, hey, I'm from Guatemala. Shit's fucked up. I want to apply for asylum. Do what you will with me. Um, what they're doing, what the Trump administration has done consciously is say, get the fuck out of here. You're supposed to at that moment. The basic rule is, OK, go in this office here. Let's talk about it. But they're saying, no, you have to go away. In some cases, lying about what the rules of engagement are in that moment. And so those people are being pushed out backwards 
uh, and then they cross in illegally. And once they cross in illegally, they're being classified as the same as illegal immigrants, and therefore they're infesting us. And there's a huge, you know, percentage of people who are committing crimes and all this stuff. Well, well most of which is garbage uh, there. Um, so that's a new category, yeah. and and the number of of and those people who are asylum seekers. That's uh-huh. the rule change here. Is that asylum seekers are going to no more catch and release for those people because they crossed in illegally. If they cross illegally, yeah, and, right. So we're going to treat them like that, and then, um, that, and then, and then we take them. their kids away um, when they're two years old. Um, that's the new thing, and that's visceral. Um, it's it's child abuse. It's 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 awful. And to and to watch you were kind of alluding to it, Michael, Tracy, um, before um, like to watch. 55% of the Republican Party or, uh, or people who self-identify as Republicans say, yeah, it's pretty great. Whereas the rest of the country is like 80 to 20 or more or less. Um, like, oh, are you fucking kidding me with this? Um, that it, and there's Quinnipiac and CBS poll. Uh-huh. Both, both are, are consistent of this. That tells us something that I think is alarming and dark in a different way than I, I've seen before. There are but people I, who are who have oriented themselves in such a way saying, fuck, yeah, this is what we do because, you know, zero tolerance. What part about illegal don't they understand? So that is a pathology that's going to be with us after this thing uh, uh, dissipates. And it it troubles me. So can I ask a question about pathologies in our in our politics? Um, The the reality is and there's there's two different things that I think are of interest here. The first go round when the Obama administration was deporting record numbers of people, uh, as has been alluded to, or when they were undertaking their own version, not so much family separation, but family detainment, take them all, put them all in some sort of cage together when they try to come here illegally. There were legal proceedings. There were, in fact, challenges. There were well over 100 Democrats who signed a letter, uh, Democratic lawmakers trying to get this this policy overturned. They did institute these policies with the hope and aspiration that it would serve as a deterrent. They were, in some cases, holding people in these cages indefinitely. It didn't create this sort of media firestorm. And Republicans, as a party at that time, didn't make a massive issue out of this. But it's also the case that the media didn't go absolutely nuts. There were a Our, lot of headlines in 2014. There, there were, some, there were the, a lot of headlines about, there, about you're correct. The, it, in it's 2014. Just, it wasn't nearly this. And it's almost certainly has a lot to do with the visceral character of Donald Trump and what he brings out of people. It's the but, visceral character but of, of, it of also, like kids screaming mammy and pappy. I, I mean, I like, suspect there was plenty of screaming in the last go round as well. There may have been a lot of headlines. It simply was not like this. I mean, this is a totally different scale of upset and outrage. And I, I wonder if part of that isn't also the rather convenient relationship that most Americans have with the actual implications of policies that their parties happen to support. If your guy is doing this thing, even if it offends your sensibilities in some sort of moral way, because there are conservatives who are speaking out against this today, um, perhaps not all, but there are some. Quite a few. But, but while Democrats might not have been vociferously defending this mm. because they didn't have to, that doesn't mean that they didn't have the capability to find a way to justify policies that other under other circumstances they might have excused altogether. And I'll, I'll, I'll take it another way. And it's, it's an observation that's been made a few times, and I made it myself earlier today that the the actual effect of some policy, of some law that requires Americans to go on trial and be prosecuted for crimes that do not have any sort of victims, and they still end up going to prison, 
being necessarily separated from their families. But this is a pretty big deal as well. And there are plenty of laws that Americans happily support and endorse or just completely ignore um, that have exactly that sort of consequence. And they are affecting well over several thousand student um, kids. They're affecting well over 50 kids per day. And that is our current reality. Family separation isn't just a component of our immigration policy. Family detention isn't just a component of our immigration policy. It is U.S. policy. It is part of what we do in this country. I just think it's a yes and, not a yes but. Of course it's not a yes but. But but what I'm asking here, and it's a very long windup to the extent it's a question at all, is it seems to me that the real dysfunction here isn't so much just about like Republican sentiments about immigration and how there's something odd about how inhumane their convictions are about this. For them, it's, look, if you don't want this to happen, don't break the law. That is precisely the perspective that most Americans take when it comes to the violation of those laws where there are, in fact, no crimes like sex workers or so, yeah, drug yeah, I would be happy to see Rachel Maddow cry about drug laws, too. No, I mean, there's, is, is, there, is there anything, you know, when you think about it, is the drug war has broken up more families than this, yeah. you know, past couple of months. But, but uh, to your point, Camille, um, <clears throat> on the media and this and the reactions in 2014 to Matt's point, you know, this, the, there were some headlines. And I remember if these, you know, the, the deporter uh-huh. in chief was what, what uh, Obama was tagged and around that time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there were people talking about it. And I agree with Camille that the scale is different. It doesn't even kind of merit a mention or doesn't even, uh, do, should we even bother talking about it? At this point, this is always the case, right? I mean, we know this, that, that, that George W. Bush's foreign policy was basically extended by Barack Obama and it was treated entirely differently. Nothing, nothing surprised us about that, right? I mean, it was like the, the, sure. the war on terror, you know, maintained a pretty good consistency from 2008 up until the sort of Iraq drawdown. And, and you know, there was also the and surge good, in Afghanistan. One of him means he likes it. Yeah, love it. Really love it. Okay. <laughs> Who can't we bomb? Um, you know, and, and there's always the joke that there was no homelessness from 1976 to 1980. <laughs> then from 1980 to 1988, there was a lot of homelessness, right? We expect this sort of thing. That said, I also don't have a tremendous amount of sympathy for, for, for this current administration, because here's the thing. Mm-hmm. If someone is attacking you all the time, Donald Trump thinks that there is, again, it's like this idea that it's that it's like the MTA in New York or it's like a public works project that the media has to comport itself in a particular way. Right. No, it doesn't. They're private companies and do the fuck they want. When you're being attacked every day by that, you know, dribbling moron and, and Sarah Huckabee Sanders or any of these halfwit fucking associates of the, of the president or the president himself who is pointing at you at, in these rallies of full also of slobbering morons and they're all turning around and shouting at you and the fake news and all this stuff. CNN is just boring as fuck. It is just bad news. <laughs> it's not fake news as such. I mean, any, any more than, you know, the Washington Times is fake news. But here's the thing. When you keep slapping somebody in the face and then you're like, you know what? You're not treating me fairly. 
Uh-huh. Motherfucker, what do you expect? <laughs> I don't get this. I don't really understand this idea that you can go on a jihad. You're the Khalid Sheikh Mohammed of uh-huh. hating the media. And then all of a sudden at the end of it, you're like, you're not treating me fairly. You were so much nicer to Obama, who, by the way, was born in Kenya and probably never <laughs> went to Colombia. But, you know, this expectation that these people have a duty mm-hmm. to be fair to you, they do not. And I'll tell you what, you keep bullying them and you keep pushing them around and they're going to fight back. And that's what you saw at the beginning of this administration with the intelligence agencies who were full of liars and frauds and they got everything wrong and they're trying to destroy my life and campaign. And he goes to CIA headquarters and people are kind of looking at him and kind of hissing at him. And then all of a sudden there's this avalanche of leaks. How did this happen? How can they do this? It's like, guys, why is this mysterious to you? Mm -hmm. You're bully people. You're angry at them. You're nasty to them. You call them all sorts of names. They're going to punch back. But I think there's also, uh, I mean, maybe there's good reason to not, uh, I mean, I, I think that it's perfectly uh, advantageous to Trump to be fighting with the media at all times. Oh, of course, of course. Right? So, like, uh, he's not I expecting mean, fairness. He's no, not, he doesn't he, want uh, it. Yeah. Doesn't yeah. want it. Yeah. I mean, the, the reporting this week, a lot of it about Stephen Miller, who's one of the architects behind this, um, that they want these fights and these contradictions. And I think this is a, a category difference in addition to the actual. Heighten the contradictions. Actual mm-hmm. category difference of we're treating asylum seekers in a different way when they come in with kids, mm-hmm. which we are, um, uh, and attempting to enforce this completely utopian uh, fantasy that there is a zero tolerance that you can do with immigration, that you can seal the border, right? uh, right? That you can can just sort of like bend the entire federal government's will into this direction. It's all a fantasy. You you can do it, but not without consequence. No, you actually can't can't do it. You You can't do it. And and then if you do do it, uh, you know, the rest of the country is going to be outraged to the point where you won't be able to do it for, for uh, much longer. Yeah. Uh, But like, uh, all the Stephen Miller worldview of this is like great, and Steve Bannon too. Um, Chris Kobach, the uh, the uh, fucking knuckle dragging nightmare, who's going to be the next governor of Kansas, who just got his fucking uh, helmet taken off by uh, a federal judge in Kansas over his uh, stupid uh, voter suppression commission. Uh, uh, well, the commission's <laughs> no, the already commission's bound. Great, that's done. <laughs> but no, they had you had to show proof of your citizenship to vote in Kansas, and so thirty thousand or more people got disenfranchised as a result. And the judge was like, um, "Can you show me like evidence of any?" Illegal alien voters out there is like, yeah, there's lots. Let's get my friend Hans out here to and like the, he could basically find maybe Who's 60. Hans? Hans von Spakowski. Oh, oh, really? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Really? Oh, oh yeah. 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 Uh, no, anyways. Fantastic um, name, by the way. That's really. Uh, <laughs> He's dueling at an Austrian fraternity. Uh <laughs> No, they love this shit. I mean, the, the, why why wouldn't they love it? Because it's whenever the media gangs up on the president, it reinforces everybody, it reinforces the media, it reinforces the president. The, there is no bigger glue holding whatever republicanism means right now than anti-media animus. There isn't anything. There isn't a damn thing. And, so, and to watch the media, like the media, and like uh, you know, as I said, you you have this expectation when certain people are in power, and especially certain you know horrifying people like Donald Trump are in power, um, that the media is going to lurch in a particular way. But one of the most amazing things to to watch, and I'm doing a story on this now, but not at the media aspect, just a, a larger story on the subject, is to watch everybody's um, newfound respect for free trade 
I mean, it's really astonishing. Tracy I mean, doesn't have that. But. I, mean, I know, yeah. But it is really amazing. It is like, I, I mean, I like Claire McCaskill today talking Bernie about- Bernie Sanders was criticizing Donald Trump on free trade. I'm like- Bernie, Bernie, really? Sanders, Bernie Sanders told me when I interviewed him last year and I was sitting in his office and it was, I think I've mentioned him there, it was a very, very fun interview. I really enjoyed my sort of brief time with him because he's quite funny and like very engaging. Um, and he said to me, he's like that he liked- He's like, I like the policies writ large, but it's just oh, wait, the wait, kind wait, of, do I, I know, I know, I know. You're really not going to let go Bernie Scent? Uh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> uh, Michael, the policy. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was, uh, I told you about the chair thing, right? When he was there, I told you that one time when he got mad at the chair, uh-huh. they gave him the short chair. And he like got freaked out and he was like, get rid of the chair. And I was like, Jesus Christ. It's like my grandfather. But he did. He did have this amazing thing. He was like, he was like, the policy's great. He's like, he's like, but the person Trump, you know, I'm, I'm making him much more rabbinical than he actually is. But, um, but yeah, he was, he was perfectly happy with the policy. He just said, you know, it's the wrong person doing it and they're doing it for the wrong reasons. But you know, by and large, yeah, fine. I, uh, I've, I've had quite a few moments on, uh, MSNBC, where people are, uh, from my point of view, rightly uh, uh, busting uh, Trump's chops on trade, but then they will have to say because they're MSNBC like guests and like, I you know I have my own problems with trade agreements, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's just that this president is really terrible. Yeah, you and mean, you mean, it, look, it's by the way, it's, when they say they have the problem with trade agreements, they use the exact same language that Trump uses and that Bernie Sanders uses. We want fair trade. We like trade. We don't. We don't want to close up the entire the difference, country. The like difference. The difference here, trade, not free trade. Yeah. The difference here to to preempt Tracy is is that. Um, uh, the Trumpian fair trade is they're all screwing us. Yeah. The Bernie uh, fair trade is uh, it's an international race to the bottom sure. and they don't have uh, worker yeah. protections, yeah. environmental yeah, protections. Yeah, it's different. And I mean, they're, they're the, all wrong. The, the, I think they're all wrong. But well, I, I think, that, I but think the, the Bernie one Trump is, wouldn't embrace those that he, sort of rhetoric. He, he kind I mean, what would Bernie and his is a more coherent um, complaint. And it's not one that I agree with, but when he says things like, look, if globalization is this inexorable force and it's just going to happen and that we you know, that it's, it's, we need to sort of realign policy to make sure fewer people get hurt. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially the argument is that we need jobs programs. We need government spending when all these products are coming in and eliminating industries that previously were quite, quite, you know, active in certain areas of the country. I don't find that a compelling argument, but it's much more coherent than what Trump's is, which is a fundamental misunderstanding of something that doesn't really matter anyway, which is trade deficits. And he's obsessed with, you know, they're eating our lunch. And I can't remember what economists said is like, you know, I have a trade deficit with my barber. Uh I go and I give him money and I get nothing in return. (laughs) You know, I mean, this, that argument is so fantastically dumb that only somebody like Donald Trump could, could believe it. I think Bernie Sanders is wrong. I don't think he's in, I don't think he's outside of the sort of mainstream of the, the Part, the, but the, can we, the, let, can the, we the, let Tracy get no, yeah, Not at all. The part, <laughs> yeah. the part where he's wrong is the international rates to the bottom, which I've been hearing forever. Um, sure. No, that's I know. Not, yeah. that, that's not how it's worked out. Yeah. But regardless of what their arguments are that they marshal in favor of a policy objective such as, say, steel tariffs to benefit Southeast Ohio, what does it matter if it, if it leads them to the same place, which is implementing steel tariffs to benefit workers in Southeast Ohio? It doesn't particularly matter if your ultimate aim is forging a political co- coalition such that you can actually achieve 
a mutually agreed on policy, then wh- whether you're coherent or not doesn't particularly matter in the real world of actually getting things done. Oh, oh, it absolutely does. And I mean, it does for a few reasons. I mean, when mm-hmm. you are Donald Trump and you are waging this singular war against a China, and especially when you're talking about steel in which, you know, we don't we're not getting a lot of Chinese steel. I mean, this is the, the, the numbers on this are completely crazy. But w- the larger thing that he's doing is creating these ripple effects. Whereas I think if, if if somebody was going to do a sort of Bernie Sanders or a lighter version of what Bernie Sanders does, okay, tariffs, there exist tariffs all over the place. I mean, the average tariffs with, you know, Canada, or, you know, 1.5% or something. Some of them on dairy, for instance, are much higher. You know, in Japan, you can't fucking sell an American car in Japan, right? That's horrible. China limits access to so many of their markets. And that's also a problem. You know, currency manipulation, fine. Stealing IP, fine. It's, those are just kind of rote talking points. But when you do it in such a broad-based way, where I think that if there was the lefty version of this that I would say, okay, you know, I disagree with you, but go ahead, is we need more programs in these areas for people who are out of jobs in an aluminum smelter. And we need to put in these tariffs that are like, I mean, 25% and 10% are enormous. I mean, that's, you know, people, like companies are already going out of business and scaling down their buying for the next year. Like we have farmers for instance, plan a couple years in advance. Already their tractors are more expensive because steel has gone up. I mean, there are ways of doing it in a constrained way. What Trump is doing is just this blast furnace. And everyone is saying, really? You want to do that? You want to fuck with us? Okay, great. European Union on Friday is going to institute European Union, which is not in anywhere, in any time, was in Trump's rhetoric in the campaign that they are screwing us. China is, quote, (laughs) eating our lunch. We have, quote, you know, created modern China. Yes, we have, and we have benefited too, you dumbass. I mean, please, if you're gonna create a middle class in China or sort of a rising middle class in China, in India, in Vietnam, we benefit too. If we're going to benefit steelworkers in Southeastern Ohio, who else is going to lose their jobs for their benefit? And that is something that we have have the numbers on this that are, you know, every economist in the world says you were going to lose a lot of jobs by saving those jobs. Donald Trump never addresses that. And he does this enormous like grape shot technique, which is we're annoying Canadians in telling them it's a national security issue. Are you kidding me? So you know, fair, fair enough. My qualm with how his, you know, pity party at the G7 was covered in terms of the media was that. Okay, Trump wants to levy some uh, tariffs against dairy products in Canada. Sure. If so facto, the Western alliance is crumbling. It just didn't seem totally proportionate with what he was actually proposing, which is just a symptom of the larger malady when it comes to coverage of Trump. Everything is blown out of proportion to satisfy this media incentive that people have to keep up this tenor of constant apocalyptic outrage that I think people are losing their ability to properly contextualize policy that in an earlier era, I mean, levying dairy tariffs against Canada would have been a minor story on the business page. It wouldn't have been this civilizational crisis. And I think we have to kind of figure out how to revert back to form in that sense. And it kind of plays into the immigration issue as well. One thing I wanted to comment on is that I don't fault find any fault with the immigration activists who, you're right, I was at the 2012 Democratic Convention as well. I remember the protests. I remember the civil disobedience. I remember them interrupting Obama's speeches mm-hmm. and having yeah. to be escorted mm-hmm. out of rooms. So they, there's no inconsistency there. The inconsistency was with, is with how the wider media has treated those grievances. And, it, it, it almost wasn't covered in the 2012. It wasn't uh, covered. It was considered maybe a, maybe a minor n- novelty compared to what 
how, how it's covered now. And I think that almost entirely has to do with the personages yeah. of Trump versus Obama. I think that's why people are frustrated and why they're bringing up the Obama comparison in the first place. I'm not bringing up the Obama comparison because I'm saying, oh, how horrible is it that Trump is being unfairly covered? I mean, Trump wants to be in a celebrity death match with Chris Cuomo every day. So who cares if he's being covered fairly or not? Yeah. I, I don't particularly. And he did, and I, 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 the, the, the issue yeah. is that you, you bring Obama up because the issue, the, the issue of family separation, of every injustice that is that is brought upon people trying to cross the border, if that that issue is not looked at in a systemic way, right, rather than a, as a Trump aberration way, then you're not going to achieve any kind of long term fix. You're going to say to yourself, okay, once we get Trump out of the Oval Office, somehow there's going to be a magic solution to this. Yeah, that, I mean, part of that is is and one reason why I'm interested in those poll numbers with a twenty percentage point uh, a GOP uh, uh, favoring. Um, the family separation policies is that this has been with us for a long time in the Republican Party. Um, these desires, this is an unfulfilled fantasy, and um, and they're already just. And one of the reasons why I'm sort of depressed watching the rhetoric this week and just sort of uh, communicating with people about this. Um, they're putting themselves in position of of like it's never going to be falsifiable. We'd never really try to seal the border, right. um, no matter what like Trump does uh, 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 out there. Um, but that. It exists beforehand. I mean, Chris Kobach, who I mentioned before, he's the one who authored Mitt Romney's self-deportation policy, right? He's a creature that predates Trump. The Republican Party has been going in these directions for a long time. You know, Mitt Romney was was in all high dudgeon this week about stuff. Mitt Romney is as responsible for any as anybody before Trump of pushing the Republican Party in a restrictionist uh, position. It's not even close. Jeb Bush was talking about fucking anchor babies when he was trying to run for president. Whenever... Uh, Bill Clinton in 1995 and 1996, and we've played the audio on the show before. Mm -hmm. Weirdly enough, whenever like politicians feel threatened um, and like got to pander to a base to win re-election, John McCain in 2010 when he's running against J.D. Hayworth, suddenly they start talking about immigration restriction. And so part of the reason why you bring this stuff up, and I try to argue today, uh, should be haunting actually to restrictionists, right? They can point to all these, oh, look at this hypocrite. You know, Bill Clinton said this, so what's the problem? Barack Obama said this, what's the problem? Well, maybe actually um, you should see this as a problem that people uh, will give very insincere promises about unfulfillable dreams that you have, they're not going to fulfill them because they can't be fulfilled. Uh, yeah. And one thing on that is that restrictionists should also be upset about, you know, you have a president who enjoys never bending on an issue and enjoys tweaking people and pissing them off, you know, forever and never saying like, you know, I'm sorry about calling people rapists or something. And today the president backed down. Right. The president assigned an executive order, which is confusing in a lot of ways. And the language is a bit soft. We don't know exactly what it's going to do. Essentially just directing sessions to uh, pretend this is not the law, to challenge the, yeah. the law in court and that a, requires a, them to yeah, break up the families, yeah. but so, still intends to implement the zero tolerance. So, policy. yeah, zero tolerance. We're not going to break up families. We're, we're actually going to arrest you and we're buckling gonna, to pressure on this. Yeah, detain the whole family. Yeah. And, and, and what's, what I thought was interesting about this is that to, to your point, 
and, you know, Bill Clinton does it, every Democrat, Republican does it, is that, you know, immigration restrictionism is always popular. Uh And we have just hit this inflection point where Donald Trump took it so far that it's not really popular anymore. Is it popular with Republicans? Yeah, like 50% of them is actually 50% of Republicans who don't. And they looked at the poll numbers and they understood where the winds were kind of blowing and realized that they should actually back off on this issue. Now, if we look, take, just take that camera and sort of, you know, take the focus out a little bit. And there's been three things that in, you know, one sentence, basically, that are amazing to me that have happened in the past week and that no one has really noticed. And to, to, to give you a sense of how global this issue is and how consistent it is across countries and borders and cultures is, you know, in Germany, a, a off day, AFD, the alternative for Deutschland, which is like a fucking bananas party, is now the second largest party in Germany. They've actually outpacing SPD, the Social Democrats, which basically ran that country with 15 seconds and why there are bananas. Uh, oh, my God. I mean, this is a, a, a party that grew out of Pegida, like the anti-Islamist movement, and they are the closest Germany's ever come. Germany has been very good at, f- at, at, at fending off far-right parties because of their history and because of a number of reasons. They had this party called NPD, which is like a neo-Nazi party. This is kind of the respectable National Front kind of party. Second biggest party, Sweden. The Sweden Democrats actually polled last year, uh, last month, at maybe the biggest, par- biggest party in the country in this, in this um, YouGov poll, which is probably unreliable, but second biggest. When I left Sweden, they were 0.2% or 0.1%. Second biggest, they won't, they, nobody covers them in the media. There has been a cordon sanitaire on all these coalition governments to ever work with them. And now they're the second biggest. You go in Hungary and, you know, Viktor Orban's government, Fidesz, running the show and doing it quite well and popular. Now go to Bannon's project in Italy, where you have what Bannon said the other day, which is be interesting to, you know, kind of like, you know, what we talked about with Michael, Bannon said the other day, look, what's happening in Italy, we have the Five Star Movement, which is a left-wing populist movement, and the Northern League, the League now, which is a right-wing Northern populist movement, together in this coalition, and and, and Bannon has been advising them, and he said, look, this is what I want in America. I want the Sanders people, and I want the Trump people to get together and sort of forget about the other differences and focus on the stuff that's really important, which is immigration, depressing wages, and, you know, these elites doing blah, blah, blah. And across Europe, Across Europe, even after the sort of end of the migration crisis, like the real migration crisis, anti-immigration parties are rolling. They're doing so well. There is a point, I think, with when you see with Trump uh, today, which you get so psychopathic. And what happens, you have these audio of people, kids crying and thing. It doesn't policy doesn't matter at that point, because I think about the first day I let I I brought my daughter to school the first time she ever went to school and she was crying and like wailing and crying. And I was like leaving was like the most painful thing I've ever done in my life. And I picked her up at three. You know, I was like 8.30 and I picked up at three. And that resonates with people. They like as numbers. It's illegal. Don't do it. Mm-hmm. When they, when you can humanize it in that way and like they're taking kids away and you see these images of kids and cha- like there is a point where the, the Stephen Miller rhetoric does not pay dividends anymore. But it's always a popular policy so to be anti-immigrant. Is, when is Michael Tracy going to join forces with Steve Bannon? That's what I'm hearing. <laughs> he actually lives in his basement in Italy. Yeah. Well, who lives in whose? That's the question. Uh, Bannon lives in Tracy's basement. He's got a place in the Amalfi Coast. You know, one thing that, <laughs> one thing that I toyed with in 2016, never outright endorsed, but I thought this thought experiment with, was worth, worth entertaining. And actually this 
this tendency in me predates the Trump era is what would some kind of alliance of convenience between left and right populism look like in practice? Is it even possible? And I remember I, I wrote a post for my own kind of personal uh, blog type thing prior to the 2016 election where I said, is it possible, is it conceivable that Trump could make some kind of deal with you know, the left to achieve some kind of mutually agreed upon policy goal? Cut a, you know, he's a famous, you know, you know the, the big deal maker. Could he cut a deal along those lines? And I never thought it was a huge possibility just given the constraints of how American politics operates. And sure enough, one thing that I underrated in terms of that was how reliant Trump would end up being on just the rank and file Republican personnel in Washington who were around and waiting to jump at at any opportunity to join a Republican administration, regardless of, you know, the ideological peculiarities of the individual Republican. I mean, there is a New York Times magazine piece within the past week about how dominant the Heritage Foundation is in terms of just staffing the administration. So that is a factor that I think people consistently underrate, and I probably did as well. But the Italy example shows that it it isn't totally outside the realm of possibility to to see how it worked. And there's actually a big fissure within the left on that score because for huge elements of the left – Doing anything that even remotely resembles a che- uh, some kind of accord with what they view as, often rightly, racist, bigots, xenophobes, anti-immigrants, that's just totally off the table, not even worth considering in any meaningful sense. And actually, if you do and uh, consider it, then you're kind of an enabler of fascism, mm. <laughs> which is a big bridge to divide. Um but and I think, you know, in the American context, it's it's it seems increasingly untenable. But looking elsewhere, I mean, it seems like a, a tendency that, you know, there there is some momentum behind. And I think Trump, you know, has has foreclosed on that possibility a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, but 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 it is something that I think to be mindful of. I, I, is, one is one any... uh, recommendation for people is uh-huh. today. On uh, whatever day it is today, what is it today? 20th. Wednesday the twentieth. Yeah, um, you can find this on NPR's website. There was on Morning Edition, I think, was an interview with Stephen Moore. You guys all know him very well, Steve uh, Moore, the uh, yep. economist, uh, one former uh, free trader. Yeah, Stephen well, Moore. he's like the supply sider free trader, and it is a master's class in how to say that you support free trade and support President Trump right now. <laughs> Listen to the interview. It Larry is, Kudlow tried and yeah. ended up in the hospital. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he had a heart attack because he'd been doing coke for forty eight years. <laughs> but he admitted it. Come on, it's not, he's not doing it anymore. I just, I, I don't, don't sue. He's not doing it anymore. I don't think. Maybe. <laughs> Tried to sell him an eight ball, and there was like a 25 percent tariff on it, and uh, they all got fucked up. It was great, but it was like weird though because Steve Moore was like, it was amazing. Like I couldn't believe it. I was like, this is actually really skillful. In which he is defending President Trump's policy, which is a you know anathema to what what he believes and what his whole career twenty five years. Not only Wait, on maybe trade, longer. but on immigration. He's yes. like been yeah. he's been like pretty oh, much yeah. open borders. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean, look, I, I was listening to. A Wall Street Journal podcast, Paul Gigo's podcast, and I know that we've had Barry Weiss in the show, and she left the journal because of going in a Trumpy direction. But that was the most, you know, pro-immigration page in the country, yeah. probably. And you had Jason Riley who wrote a book 
Um, let them in called let them in <laughs> it's called let them in uh-huh. and he was the conservative guy the, and that seems to be totally abandoned i don't know maybe in the page but i heard it in this podcast that was kind of cycling in the background and i was like good god what who are these people and it was paul gigo and whoever else uh from the from the journal editorial page and they've all like turned on a dime there was like, a, a tweet uh, today uh, by patrick ruffini who's a guy i like a lot he's a republican like number cruncher pollster guy um libertarian leadings but conservative and, um, you know, there's a lot of people in his idea space, to use a terrible word, um, who are talking about how, you know, should you leave the Republican Party? Should you not? S.E. Cup is talking about this. Other people who disagree with Trump fundamentally on these uh, issues. Steve Schmidt. Steve Mike, Schmidt, Mike, right. That's, Michael Cohen. That's yeah. what uh, who, who was left the party finally, today. He didn't leave the party. Oh, he, he, he left the party leadership. Yeah, but he did. He did. Dis- Michael describe Cohen was a leader note that of the Republican of the things, Party. That's fucking great. One of the issues that he left over, at least mentioned in his letter today, resigning his position was also the uh, immigration policy. Really? Of the Republican Party. Yes, that's right. Once again. Yeah. Why not? Michael Cohen. Conscience yeah. of a nation. Uh, <laughs> God. Uh, but uh, so Patrick Ruffini uh, in this uh, in this tweet said, I'm not going to leave the Republican Party because, uh, look, just by a narrow margin, it got taken over by this person who has all these beliefs that I'm uh, totally against. And the only reason why uh, people are rallying to him because is there's a, a significant uh, percentage of Republicans who are just going to gather around the cult leader at any given time and defend him no matter what he does. Um, And, you know, I want to be able to argue uh, so that the next Republican president has better ideas and stuff. And I was just like, bro, you're like, (laughs) you want to stay in the cult? (laughs) Talk about Jimmy Jones here, right? Like, it's a weird thing. Uh, And and I think we've all seen that kind of opportunism. I mean, the Rick Wilson uh, uh, quote is that uh, Trump kills everything that uh, he touches or everything he touches dies. Uh, There's something to that, like this this extended, like, smoke out every Paul Ryan, every uh, one of these uh, opportunists, one after the other, as being worthless at at kind of best and then yeah, active collaborator can, can i can i get something in here quickly and no. because I've, I've actually got a, <laughs> this is, a train this, this is my podcast here in like 10 minutes well it's it's all of ours together socialism he's wearing um, a hat called winners it's not my podcast dallas winners <laughs> um i i wonder about a couple of things i mean one is a concern that i've expressed before in the context of like black lives matter and a lot of the social justice activism around like criminal justice reform and the fact that we make this a, a We've made it. It's been cast as a large an issue that is largely about race and racism. And for a lot of the national conversation, it hasn't really moved. It's been pretty stultified as a consequence. Um, the I wonder if there's not an analogy to be drawn from there to the current circumstance and the situation we have with Donald Trump and the general sensibilities about him. What actually motivates him is often what the conversation is about. I've read a lot of otherwise thoughtful, interesting pieces that have a lot of analytical rigor to them, exploring the contours of the immigration situation, um, but then arriving at a place where they begin to speculate about what could possibly be motivating this man. He's already acknowledged that he would prefer to have more um, more immigrants from a place like Norway, as opposed to these horrible shithole countries where brown people come from. There's always that subtext. And, and, it's going to sound weird, but I don't care. Well, I don't care I, either. I, well, I, I wonder about it, and I wonder about it for a couple of reasons. Certainly, when we draw analogies to Europe, there's a sense that whatever Donald Trump is doing, it is very much in line with the worst 
elements of the nationalist movements in Europe and the worst elements, I suppose, of the white nationalist movement here in the United States and that they're all in cahoots and that at the end of the day, they're all driving after the same policy. You said you don't care. It still matters to me a lot if the conversations that we're having are with people who fundamentally like agree with us and are a lot like us, perhaps in ways that we might not like if we consider it a little more deeply. Maybe the fact that people are willing to sort of change clothes uh, when a new administration comes into town, abandon their previous positions in order to to strengthen the party. I mean, this is the dynamic that happens all the time. It just doesn't necessarily always require so much of you in terms of the the barrage of criticism that you face when you make this change for Donald Trump or on his behalf. But- well, I mean, t- to the narrow point, Trump changed the Republican Party much more rapidly and much more sharply than any modern president I'd say has that's, changed I'd say that's true. their party, with, yeah. with the possible exception of Nixon, but that gets complicated. So, I mean, like that, that yes, there is more like media pressure always on a Republican pre- uh, president, like, oh, Jim Jeffords, where are you going to land at long last? <laughs> uh-huh. You know, there's well, all this And that's talk. not even the point I'm making about like sort of the media pressure on a Republican. I just mean in general. But in, I mean... Because it went so so radically different in a short period of time, mm-hmm. we noticed this, and we noticed the utter Stephen Morian gormlessness and uh, and just lack of of coherent principle on these people a lot more. But go on. Well, I mean, let me narrow it. If the fundamental question here is about the merits of the policy that are being offered, like do does the proposition that low-skilled immigrants coming into this country hurt America. Is this true? Is there economic uh, evidence from economics that we can draw upon there, to make there, this argument there's both, in a serious way? I mean, there, there are people that say that um, the long term, it, it depresses wages in uh-huh. a certain way. And there's people that make radically different arguments. I mean, there was this guy from um, Harvard who... George Borjas. Uh, who was the guy from Harvard? That, no, George uh, Borjas. No, was it him? There's a, the other guy, I mean, Kerry Howley, long ago, uh, reviewed his book. But, um, you know, David Frum is, is like, it's always non-Americans, by the way, who are huge immigration restrictionist. Yeah. V. Dare started by um, a, a guy, a psychopath from Liverpool. Gavin McInnes. <laughs> yeah, J- uh, John not Derbyshire. True. Gavin McInnes. Um, uh, well, it is the V. Dare. No, thing. no, not Gavin. Uh, no, uh, but... <laughs> but it was Peter Brimlow. No, no, no Peter Brimlow. Yeah, no, he's but, British. No, I was just uh, adding Gavin yeah, to I think Canadians John O'Sullivan, who's British, was a restrictionist. restrictionist. Uh, David Frum, who's always making this argument about um, citing economic data that... that um, Which is a weird thing yeah, just to interject. Yeah. Brian Doherty has has pointed this out a lot, like a lot of David Frum's prescriptions for where the Republican Party should go circa 2009. Trump went there. Mm -hmm. He just went there as a crude boor. And so Frum is like, you know, totally against it all because he can't stand it. But like Frum wanted uh, someone who was going to be a much more national frontish in embracing the welfare state, uh, restricting immigration and a bunch of these kind of stuff on the actual policy. It, it wasn't that far. I mean, they're probably Trump, Trump went there, but he went through the epistemic closure wormhole that <laughs> yeah, Frum warned against. So it was kind of like a weird synthesis of what Trump was about. Uh, Frum was both warning against and advocating. Yeah. It is, and, and, and probably and I don't know if this is true, probably Ross Douthat and Ryan Salam. Uh, Salama, who wrote the yeah. book about, you know, being Sam's true. Club Republicans. Yeah, that sort of thing. Oh, uh, this is a oh. very Brooksian. Remember those term. days? But the, 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 the thing, the thing, the one final thing on this point of it, 
the boorishness of Donald Trump. There's, by the way, something to be said for that. I think that that vulgar scumbag. It, yeah. yeah, we don't want that. We shouldn't have that. We the shouldn't other, have the boorishness. No, no, no. no. I don't. I even just, even it, when it exposes the the underlying nature of some policy conundrum. It, Correct. Yes. Even then. Even then, uh, and it hasn't done that yet. A vulgar shithead should not be president. Yeah, I, I think that it shouldn't for for a variety hmm. of reasons. Even even when it forces the press to be adversarial in a way that might actually uh, be useful. Ends don't justify the means in my, uh, also, in my universe. It, it also, doesn't, but it, the it tats, also doesn't matter. The tattoo on my forearm does yeah. not say the ends <laughs> fucking justify It also doesn't matter whether or not <laughs> someone is motivated by sort of ugly, gross base motives or whether they're but motivated you, by... What no one ever sees about this is that we always focus on like, oh, you know, he's just being boorish and, and you know, we, we can handle that. Mm-hmm. Like the presidency is not this kind of amazing, divine place where people are pure and sure, sure, sure. But, but, but there, there is... Donald Trump's boorishness is not something that exists only for the purpose of the media and external forces. He is, by all accounts, like this in private mm-hmm. and like this in negotiations with foreign countries. And it has screwed us on a number of occasions. And particularly recently with trade, one of the things about the trade thing, which I think is really funny, is that, you know, okay, he might be kind of a knuckle dragger, but he gets us there and gets to his policy. If you can keep track of Donald Trump's trade promises, threats, where he is from day to day, you're a better man than I am because I've been trying desperately to do it. And it has been so schizophrenic in that, you know, these we have exemptions for Canada and Mexico and the European Union. We'll just extend this. But no, they're not going to. That's actually not going to happen. And then we don't want a trade war, which comes from. And by the way, also a man who hires people going to hire the best people, the best people. He hires people. And this is the old joke is he hires people that because he's seen them on TV. It's essentially true. And he also hires people not understanding what they believe. He did not hire Larry Kudlow because he wanted a free trader in the room to balance it out. He hired Larry Kudlow because he liked his show on CNBC. He has no central casting. Yeah, it's exactly. He's got like the pinstripe suit and the slick back hair. And he's like, that's a guy who understands business. And why did he hire Navarro then? Well, I mean, Navarro, he, would, he would actually work. That was work. like an exception. He that, would work for him. No, because <laughs> Navarro is the is the one guy yeah. who is China, 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 China. There's and actually, that's Trump's thing. And he's that's the one thing he's been consistent on since the 80s. There was and he, wrote a, he made a film called Death by China. Yeah, yeah. that's why. Yeah. Someone showed Trump showed him that film. That okay. there was something called Death by China right. written by a person right. or yeah. done by a person. He's like, great. And Trump yeah. pretended he read it. Yeah. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. I watched it. I read it. I did whatever. And then, <laughs> and then he's like, you know. I don't like this Bush foreign policy. I like that Bolton guy. Well, who's that? Who's that? I like that guy. He's on Fox and Friends. Get him. Like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> it's like there's if there is any coherence to to, you know, like he's remade the Republican Party by sort of driving a Mack truck through through the Republican Party with members of the previous Republican Party hanging onto the truck. Like, I don't understand how he does this. And there is some sort of genius to it, but I maybe not a genius to it because maybe it just plays to the vanity and the narcissism of these people. Like, I'll work in this administration and to watch Larry Kudlow and to watch Stephen Moore and to watch, I, I did an interview with someone in this universe that I can't mention now, but to watch these people say, you know, look, we believe the same thing, but on trade, he's just trying to scare people. He is, this is the technique, guys. This is what he does. He rattles the cage and he makes all these threats. I'm like, 
you know, a month later, I'm like, hey, hey, guys, by the way, you know, he's implemented those threats and it's already starting to buckle little parts of the economy here and there. Mm-hmm. I mean, Claire McCaskill said something today about a you know nail company or something in um, in um, Missouri who is going out of business and or, you know, they laid off 100 workers or something because of the tariffs. And she wasn't wrong. I mean, she got an example from her state and it's true. And there's a number of these things that are happening. Like, you know, if there's going to be a 25% tariff or a 10% tariff on, you know, Harley Davidson's or something, uh, what, what oftentimes companies do, and people don't say like, well, they just, they lose business. They oftentimes take the factory that they have, cut production in half and move production to that country in which they have a huge customer base and there's a big tariff. You see that like, Harley Davidson is a bad example there, but like somebody who's making nails or something can set up shop somewhere else mm-hmm. and he's driving business out right now. He's going to stop them. He's well, going to stop them. Exactly. The, uh, when, when, yeah. I can't remember some company in Michigan. When this happens, when I'm president, this will not happen. No, the exact opposite will happen. More people will leave. And, you know, I mean, this, the thing about this personality is that it's not, he's not playing. This isn't for show. He's not doing the kind of madman and then going back and like, you, you remember that SNL sketch with uh, Phil Hartman doing yeah, Ronald yeah. Reagan? Yeah, he's a sweet guy and talking to the, the, the um, <laughs> what's it called? The, yeah, the Girl Scouts. And they leave and he's like, all right, come on. And he's like, he's like a brilliant, <laughs> maniacal asshole. And it's like, that's that like bifurcated Trump doesn't exist. And everyone hoped that it did and thought that it did. It just doesn't. And the that, reason why not, I resolutely do not care about Trump's interior motives when he does anything. Yeah. Although I grant that when he's huddling with Angela Merkel somewhere, his personal uh, eccentricities might inform some kind of hellishly terrible trade uh, negotiation tactic that he tries to marshal. I see so much press coverage that is organized around trying to divine what Trump's motive is, that I am repulsed by it. They're not only divining it, they're just telling us what it they're is. They're telling us what it is by somehow interpreting a body movement or a facial expression or a hand gesture. And I'm so unambiguously sick of it that I have to just state my position as I am sick of trying to psychoanalyze Donald Trump. And I want to just look at what the results of what he is, what he's doing, because, you know, this harkens back to the immigration discussion. If Trump is at his very, the very core of his being a white nationalist, or if he has, is at the very core of his being a racial egalitarian, who cares? Look at what he's actually doing and the policy impact. Mm-hmm. Likewise, if Obama was at the core of his being this cosmopolitan, bookish type who was personable, if he, what he was doing resulted in the deportation or separation of 150,000 children, I don't care what Obama's motive was. And I think people are so wrapped up in this preoccupation with the psychoanalytical take on what Donald Trump is doing on any given day, that it totally distorts their perception of the actual real world impact of what Trump is doing to, to, in a way that is not gainful. I, so I want to just yeah. push back against that tendency overall, which is why I'm planting a stake in the ground and saying, I but, don't well, care what Trump's yeah, motive is. That, before that, you answer in a serious the, way, yeah. though, you, you said you don't care if he's a white supremacist. That's a very privileged statement. <laughs> Do you want to qualify that <laughs> yeah. at all? Because there are people listening who may be ready to pounce on you for that. Okay. I care if he's implementing white supremacist policy. Okay. 
I don't care what his interior motivations are. Okay. Um, I think there's a distinction yeah. there. I, I'm glad that I gave you that opportunity. Thank you for noting this. Yeah. This is if, a woke era, and yes. we have to do that. Yeah. Sort of yes. yeah. If that was a reaction anyway to, to my rant, I think that maybe you misunderstood me. I don't in any way. I mean, when I talk about Donald Trump as being schizophrenic, I'm talking about particularly like trade negotiations, but I mean, the practical like and they go back and forth and they back and forth in that personality. I don't care where it comes from and, you know, sort of how it manifests itself, but it is creating policy problems and is actually uh-huh, right. creating real world problems. And to your point, because I think we, we probably agree on this. I'm the great example is somebody like Harry Truman, who was pretty much a racist, um, you know, yeah. kind of an avowed, and he also desegregated the army. Right. That was a pretty great thing that Harry Truman did in, you know, whatever, 1947, 1948. And so, yeah, I, you know, Harry Truman's sort of racial difficulties <laughs> yeah. are not something that I Shut agree off. with in any way. I'm imagining yeah. the inner, inner monologue, you know, of, of, of Harry Truman. Harry Truman. Uh, just let the, let the niggers fight along <laughs> by their, their good old boys. Eh? Just, I, that's, that, whatever. By the way, if, if, Bingo. In, maybe, maybe, maybe they get shot first. Yeah, yeah. maybe in the audio, sometimes you can't differentiate. Yeah. That was Camille who said that. Yes. Yeah. So, you know? um, but I, no, I, agree. I disavow that. Yeah, I, disavow, yeah. disavow. No, I agree. I, also I agree in a bigger, like in that, in that sense, like I don't really care. Um, but I and do see that, uh, that a, a, an inordinate amount of media coverage is devoted to this kind of pseudo psychoanalytical analysis yeah, of Trump, I mean, but it's not helpful in any I mean, way. No, it's the same as the, what happened. You know, they, we, they had the same thing that happened with Donald Trump. Um, and again, I don't care if these people were right or not, uh-huh. that, as happened to Barry Goldwater when you had the thousand but psychiatrists. And it that reminds, reminds me of and, Newt you know, Gingrich saying Obama is this anti-colonial menace. Remember that? It was, he uh, was developing his own, Yeah, actually. It was Newt Gingrich, no, Gingrich in, also in concert with okay. yeah. Gingrich, so, who this week said that the only wrote a book about the people who care about about, the roots uh, of Obama's rape. Right. The people who care about family separation or who are talking about it, they just hate America. Mm. Right. And that's the fact Tucker that Carlson we, also also made some similar observations. Which is uh, another reason why I, I, I find the events of this week uh, so depressing. It's just not surprising, mm-hmm. but just depressing. Like you see how people are willing to absolutely uh, go to bat for a uh, policy that that lasts about five days um, or I mean, it lasted two months, but <laughs> right. it lasted five days in the national attention. They need and, to win like two news cycles. And, uh, and, and Trump folded like a tent. I have a slightly different take uh, than, uh, than Tracy maybe on this, which is to say that I, I too don't care um, or I, I'm not worried about um, uh, if the Donald Trump's motivation is, is like sincerely racist or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I care how he campaigned and how he won and how he finds that to be uh, important and interesting to his approach to governance. And he campaigned on deporting not just 11 million illegal immigrants, but 4 million legal U.S. citizen children of those illegal immigrants. Um, although, in, in, you know, uh, uh, in, in fairness to him, he said we have to keep the families together, but we have to just be really tough um, at the time. <laughs> so he was going to deport 4 million um legal U.S. citizens. Right now, uh, over the last couple of weeks, there's been a formation or at least press attention, AP and the New Yorker attention. There's a new commission. I think it's in the Justice Department that's been set up to uh, investigate 
naturalized citizens to make sure that they answered their correct their uh, citizenship uh, questions correctly and and if not then we can strip them of their citizenship this is how he campaigned and ran during the campaign as he was running and the very first thing he did was escalator down and talk about how uh, they're not sending us their best they're sending us their fill in the blanks um you know this week talking in language like when discussing the family separation policy uh, using language like they're they're infesting us. We don't want to become yeah, used MS-13 in the same sentence. But yeah, not in the same tweet. It was the same tweet. He mentioned MS-13. Am, am I wrong, Fisher? I think I think you're wrong. But but at, at any rate, in, um, infest and MS-13 were actually back to back in that tweet. Right. But <laughs> oh, but, he, but but the context. <laughs> no, but the context of the tweet was the family separation. I mean, dude, oh, I'm, it's, I'm Donald, with on this it's one. Donald Trump. Like, no, 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 no. It's Donald Trump. He's the yeah. fucking president. I'm, I'm, I'm not you. satisfied with dude, it's Donald Trump. Yeah. I'm, dude, it's the president. I'm not telling dude, you. Dude, it's Donald Trump uh -huh. is not a fucking excuse. Dude, it's the president. It's not, this is not He should spell it's, and he not, should talk about a family separation well, policy without using spelling. the fucking word <laughs> infest. I'm, I'm, right? He shouldn't say that MS-13 is the context is, in, of this in, policy. So, but there's something infest about... Infest is a bad word, a, by listen, the way. I'm, uh, infest is a, is infest, a horrifying infest word. Infest is a stupid, awful, Not stupid. terrible word. It's, it's actually say, malevolent. You can say whatever you like. Yeah. I don't care how you want to enhance the severity of the criticism that I'm offering. I would agree on some level. There's something about the drapes that bothers me, but it's the consequence and the substance of the policy that is of great significance. What I'm saying is you're he, also he, saying he, though, he ran on this. something about him running on this and winning. He ran on this and he I, won on this. Uh -huh. This is this is who he ran as a collectivist, a negative collectivist on other populations. Sure. So you call it racist if you want. I don't I'm not interested in that. Uh -huh. But it is collectivist. It's negative collectivist and nationalist sure, it's against against uh, uh, outgroup populations. Uh, and that to me is is disgusting. It is, and, it, is, you know, it is loathsome. I will say that 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 he also emboldened a number of people that I think that previously wouldn't have sort of uh, tried to run for office in so many places on this kind of Trumpian platform in which they dialed it up to 20. And it's like these Paul Nalen types and this guy in Virginia that we talked about sure. a couple. Uh, yeah, I mean, this I mean, is people a, like that have, have run for office ex in, in a number of cases. They've, they've, they certainly didn't get any coverage before. Yeah, I think there's, I think... Didn't uh, win a lot of primaries in Virginia. Didn't win a lot of primaries in Virginia. I think they would also, if you uh, wait, kind of went the down from, there... The guy who we talked about last week, the, yeah. the quote unquote Nito Confederate, yeah, 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 Corey Stewart. Yeah, um, yeah. I think that you would I mean, it's find not nearly the same thing as Paul Nalen. But no, sure. I mean, well, Nalen just became he. I think Nalen became even worse over, over yeah. time as he. I mean, I don't know. He wasn't sort of letting on. I guess at the beginning that he was in full on anti semite. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. like a, literally a full on neo Nazi, and he is. He's a neo Nazi. Yeah. Um, there's no dispute about that. Um, but no, I think that you'd find that if you went through a number of these sort of new Trumpy candidates that there's there's there was a people that said this is a party for us now and they decided that I probably wouldn't have done so in 2008 2012 and said you know the wind is at my back and a lot of these people aren't successful I mean Paul Nellon was just blown out he wasn't successful but I think that there is a kind of you know when people are resigning from the Republican Party because they feel that the, the tenor of the party has changed and I think that that's not wrong
I mean, there's a there's certainly a narrative about that. Um, I think I think it's true. I think it's I think it's true. I mean, just from what I have seen, and but you also said that you went and saw those black guys who work in the factory. Yeah, it doesn't mean that support that, Donald Trump for look, that reason. I don't. I'm, also those seen, are those like, are rank, an uptick in the number in the percentage of black votes that he won. And that's the percentage of Latino votes that he won. I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't bet that that is going to remain steady after this election. That's, but I, no, I, 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 I would say potent. that it doesn't. The difference is is that I don't think that the rank and file people in 2016 voting for Donald Trump um, and four years later is the same thing as how the party has realigned itself. Mm-hmm. And I think the party, the way the party is realigning itself is one that is going to doom it for a generation. Well, I wonder, I wonder if you've got anything else uh, on this, Michael. I, I need to go you gotta catch go. a friggin' train. Um, <laughs> Let's all get out of Otherwise, here. I'm going to get Let's in trouble. It. We've I been think, doing a hundred yeah, minutes. No, catch your train. I mean, I, I'll just say that I think that this is the final gasp of the whatever you want to call it, the Trumpian wing of the party, which had been for so long wishing that they were ascendant within the coalition. And at the end of the day, they're not going to get a whole lot done that's going to be long lasting. So they're going to look back on this era as their final hope. And what did they get passed? A tax bill that would have been passed by Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio. They're going to get some judicial nominations that any other Republican would have passed. So they're not going to look, I think, to what transpired here with any any positivity. And it's just going to be seen as, I think, a failure in governance because of the stock that they unduly placed in Trump as a political figure. Do you think briefly that uh, we will see on the National Republican Party scale something similar to the Republican Party in California um, after Pete Wilson? Right. That's the narrative in California is that. Yep. In the early 90s, and I granted you weren't born, but um, <laughs> the Republicans went I've read things. suddenly like full on anti-immigration and went nuts about this. And that was the last of the Republican Party in California. Um, do you think this this fundamentally diminishes and reshapes the Republican Party or is it just going to like slough it off and come back up and we're in the two party rut? As long You've as we're in the two party 25 rut, seconds, as long as we're in the two party rut, there are always going to be people who gravitate toward the rightward end of the spectrum and they're going to rationalize their drift to that party in whatever way. So is it? A foregone conclusion that the party is just rendered obsolete for the foreseeable future? I don't think so, but I think we are on the precipice of an era of the almost unified democratic governance that's going to probably come about within the next two to four years. And the Trump era is going to be looked on in the future as a as an end of something. Um, But there's so there always going to be a reactionary movement in this country that I think is you know, la- maybe a minority, but a very loud and brash minority. And then where do Bernie bros go in 2020? I would like to see them go somewhere outside the Democratic Party oh. coalitions. I think they're more oh. efficacious if they're not within that structure. But I think I'm not going to win that argument. Nope, you're not. <laughs> but thank you. You're welcome. Let's get your train. Let's all get on Camille's train. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a debate we've been having like forever, like the Mm. nature of the Trump victory. And Mm -hmm. I suspect in many ways, like we'll never be able to resolve it, um, whether they voted for him because of the worst qualities that he manifested or the best 
whether his rhetoric around these issues about that seemed racially charged to use a phrase that Wes Lowry um, seems uh, to think that we shouldn't use, that we should only use the word racist apparently at, at every interval because anywhere where you could use racially charged, you should use racist. And I suppose it sounds nicer. Maybe it's more lyrical. Um, Shorter. So yeah, it's good for headlines. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know that we'll resolve it. Um, it's going to end in disaster. Everything? This era. Well, I mean, when the apocalypse come, all of this. Well, it's not, no. I'm, not, I'm not writing a left behind novel. I'm just no, I mean, saying it's going to be great. The next great 20 good. years are going to fucking suck. This is not. This is a bad this is, fucking This time. is not going really? well. Yep. Yeah, this began with the, the spider climbing the friggin. It's your spider, pal. And, not that, my spider. And, that, and that spider is going to get a big dose of water washing it out. Not again. a water acid. Yeah, acid. Acid bath. Fuck. <laughs> are you similarly pessimistic about the future, Trace? I've been reading a lot of civilizational collapse literature. <laughs> That's, <your pad>. yeah. <laughs> That's a great out right there. It's like, exactly. Ask wow. him. He's on our side. Fisher, I have been, actually. Yeah, Fisher, I'm not been, even kidding about that. Michael Rupert. <laughs> yeah. are, you, are you also just pining for the end of, of times here? Not, not pining, but kind of expecting it. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you go to your fucking happy place, the you know train what? to Happyville? No, no. The rest of us just take the subway to reality. Dear God. <laughs> I just want to do like those like hard-boiled cop things. Jeez. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. that bad, Camille. Yeah, it's bad. You know what that sounds like? American carnage. Yeah. Oh! Yeah. Hmm. He never told us that he was going to create the carnage, though. <laughs> he knows he was going to solve it. <laughs> he did. Yeah. He was a All manifestation right. of the carnage. Wow. Yeah. Be the carnage. Be the carnage. <laughs> you, hope yeah. 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 you hope to see. We are the carnage we've been waiting yeah. for. <laughs> MAGA. Yeah. Oh, God. Let me be clear. Let's, let's go. I got to go catch a train. All right. Bye. bye. All right. Bye. We, we know of new methods of attack. Eat the cake, Annie Mae.